have your Bible, open it up to Ezra chapter 6. If you don't have your Bible, you'll find one in the seat back in front of you. And you'll find Ezra chapter 6 on page 338 in that Bible. Ezra chapter 6, we'll be looking at verses 13 to 22. I was one of those who wept when the foundations of the Lord's new temple had been laid. Even though I was just a boy when I last saw Solomon's original temple, who could ever forget it? The beauty, the the awe-inspiring grandeur of its size, its majesty will forever be etched in my mind. The music, the singing, the pageantry, the celebration, I've carried them with me in my heart all these years, all these long, bitter years. It had seemed so solid, so immovable, so permanent, I, I could barely believe that they tore it down. And with it, the hopes, the livelihood, the future of our people. We had walked that trail of tears into exile, into the unknown and the foreboding future. All was darkness, all was defeat. We were the damned, the God-forsaken. And yet in time, we we did find a way to live, to, to struggle along, and eventually even to bloom where we had been planted. The prophecies helped us. They foretold how the exile would last for 70 years, but then God would come and lead us in a new exodus. They promised us a glorious future, a future more glorious than David or Solomon had ever known. The desert would turn to refreshing uh, springs, beautiful and blooming with life. God would rejoice over Jerusalem again. The wealth of the nations would stream to it. A son of David would reign forever there. God's kingdom would extend to all the earth. Maybe those hopes and those dreams got us through, or or maybe it was my own sentimentality that got me through. For though I lived my whole adult life in Babylon in captivity, my heart was always in Jerusalem. And so when, near my 60th birthday, Cyrus defeated Babylon and allowed the first of the exiles to return, I didn't have to give it much thought. I was going home. Praise Yahweh. I knew it would be hard, but but I couldn't imagine how unlike home it felt. Old memories and landmarks were now just ancient ruins. So many places were deserted and decrepit. And, and strange peoples, people somewhat like us Jews, and yet not Jews, but half-breeds and, and compromisers, defiled the holy ways of the Lord with their pagan practices. Yet we were home, and we were home to rebuild God's house. Cyrus had decreed it. Zerubbabel, our governor, and, and Joshua, our priest, would see that it happened. Once we carved out homesteads for ourselves, we erected shelters, we plowed fields, we planted crops, we scraped together the bare essentials of life. Once that had all been done, we gathered together in Jerusalem to begin. We rebuilt the Lord's altar and offered him the worship there that he deserved. 
Then we began on the temple. We cleared the rubble. We uncovered the ancient foundations. We laid new ones. When the foundations were completed, we worshipped. That's when I wept. It all caught up with me. We had been through so much, so much. I had waited for this moment my whole life. Our, our dreams for this moment were so big, and, and yet somehow it all fell so short. We were still just captives, exiles, trying to, to recreate what would be but a shadow of what had been before. Where were God's glorious promises? Well, though we worshiped that day, some of us rejoicing and celebrating and others of us weeping and wailing, it, it didn't last. None of it lasted. It wasn't long before we quit work on the temple altogether and we went about our lives. It wasn't like we didn't have reason to. We were up against incredible opposition. It was the many peoples around us, many of them pagan peoples whom the Assyrians years before had relocated to our region. Others are our fellow Jews, sort of, the, the poorest of the poor who had been left behind when Babylon took the rest of us into exile. But you could hardly call them Jews anymore, compromised and, and intermarried as they were with other peoples. First they came to us and they offered to help with the rebuilding. We, we suspected what their true motives were though, to, to infiltrate, to, to spy, to undermine our efforts. We told them where to go, that they had no part building with us. We were God's pure people. God had commanded us to rebuild and we would do it ourselves. Well, then they switched to intimidation. They bribed officials, they threatened us, they discouraged us, they did everything they could to undermine our progress. And eventually it just became too hard to continue. We gave up, can you blame us? There were so few of us, we, we, we were barely resettled ourselves, struggling just to survive. We had no power, Persia had appointed regional rulers over us and they were not friendly to our interests. Sure, Cyrus had allowed us to rebuild, but, but he was far, far away, separated from us by layers of hostile bureaucracy. We were still nobodies. We were powerless strangers in our own land. It was all we could do to feed our families. But that was all before God raised up Haggai and Zechariah to prophesy. We were not all poor and powerless, and, and they rebuked the, the wealthy and the well-connected among us. Those who should have been taking the leadership, those who had the means and the resources, but were building for themselves fancy houses, while God's house remained unfinished. These prophets also encouraged Zerubbabel and Joshua, our leaders. They urged them on, promising God's aid and help, and through their preaching, they they painted a picture of the glory that would be. God would indeed fulfill every promise he had made through his earlier prophets. God would glorify his house and his people again. Well, at the prophets urging and, and preaching, we got back to work. And we worked diligently and, and courageously. It had been 15 years now since we had begun and then quit. And the leadership of our region of the Persian Empire had changed during that time. 
Darius had replaced Cyrus as emperor, and a new local official over us was named Tatanai, a, a consummate bureaucrat, but not a bad fellow. When he realized that we were again attempting to rebuild our temple, Tatanai diligently inquired into what we were doing and reported it all to King Darius. Darius made a search of the royal archives and found that Cyrus had indeed decreed that our temple should be rebuilt. Well, Darius upheld this decree. And more than that, he concluded that it should all be paid for by royal Persian funds. Ha, the Lord be praised. He had not forgotten us. When Tat and I got involved, we, we were very worried that, that the work of the temple might be frustrated again. But instead, this bureaucratic involvement resulted in generous and diligent help from the pagan powers that be. Between you and me, it just so happened that Darius would soon be passing through our area on his way to Egypt, and this gave Tatnai all the more reason to make sure the job got done quickly, as Darius had decreed it. God was at work. Within about four years, the temple was done. It was done. The Lord had a temple again very nearly 70 years after the first one had been destroyed. What could we do but marvel and rejoice. We celebrated, we dedicated the new house to God with great joy. Even I rejoiced this time. I had seen God so clearly at work now in, in quite a variety of ways. First, moving the heart of Cyrus years before to send us home and to decree that the temple should be rebuilt. Then moving in the hearts of some of us to go home and see it done. Then when things got tough, when we grew distracted and disheartened and gave up, raising up the prophets to call us back to work. God used their preaching to prod us, to rebuke us, to encourage us. And then using the inquiry of Tatanai to move the heart of the new king, Darius, not only to allow us to continue, but to actually fund the whole project. And so by God's working, our diligent work was established and God's temple was rebuilt. How appropriate that the time of year when it was finished was Passover. That festival when we remember the first time that God led his people out of captivity by his mighty strength and power. And now the Lord was doing it again and we were getting to experience it. We saw God's hand powerfully at work among the mighty nations so that God's own purposes were accomplished. God used the people, the workers. God used the prophets he raised up. God even used bureaucrats and emperors to see his purposes accomplished. God overcame every opposition to build his house. It began long before I became a part of it, in 1970, in fact. Several families were moving to northern Westchester from further south, the Schusters, the Hearts, some others. God had put it on their heart to start a new church community in the area which was now their new home. They met in homes at first. They prayed. They studied God's word. They discussed and planned. There were aspects of their past faith tradition that they chose to leave behind. They would be a non-denominational church, open to everyone who followed Jesus Christ. There were also aspects of their tradition which they wanted to hold on to. 
the close fellowship, which made them like family, that they would be welcoming and caring. The strong emphasis on God's word, they would prioritize the teaching and the study of scripture. The faithful sending and support of overseas as well as local missionaries. The belief that God's work didn't lie in the hands of experts or clergy, but that every one of God's people could join in, could have a ministry. Well, God moved and God provided a building. Before they knew it, they were meeting in an old log cabin that had once been a tavern. God was at work in the 1970s. The Jesus People revival is the most well-known aspect of that, but all over, God was bringing people to himself. Many found their way to Community Bible Church through studying the Bible in homes and in neighborhoods. As God drew people to his word and to himself, many of these people having grown up going to church, but never really studying the Bible for themselves. Soon the old tavern was full. People were even uh, sitting out in the foyer each Sunday. The place was abuzz with excitement. With so many new young families, new Sunday school rooms had to be added on. CBC also had a reputation for being avant-garde back then. They were even written up in Christianity Today and featured for their innovative approach, having no pastor but a rota of guest speakers, uh, planning the service around a key biblical uh, truth from the scripture text, meeting in discussion groups after the sermon to discuss how to apply the message to their lives that week. But times change, and with them, the church family had to adjust. Some people had left. Young people were growing up and moving on. Others had moved away. The interest in Bible studies in, out in the community had waned. In the early 1990s, it became clear that hiring a pastor would help to provide the cohesion that people these days expected. It would take a unique person, though, to pastor this unique church. But once again, God provided. Someone well known to them and well qualified for the position just happened to be available. He had grown up from the background out of which CBC had sprung. In fact, CBC had supported him as a missionary in Kenya, and now he was returning home. Under Dave Dunkerton's wise and caring leadership, CBC continued on strong. And with God's help, he helped them through many challenges as well. As they lost many attendees when the nearby Christian college, the King's College, closed, causing pain and conflict to ripple through the CBC community. As they transitioned from a model where decisions were made by those interested members who came to a monthly business meeting to a model where an elected ministry support team handled more of the month-by-month -month functioning of the church. As they welcomed Ann Swaymon as a gifted and talented coordinator of children's and youth ministries, as they began to consider various options for further expanding and renovating the building, as they also grieved many devastating losses, those associated with 9-11, those sustained with, well, when, when young families and, and key leaders in the church, all well-loved, died suddenly or traumatically or left the church for job relocations. It was a very painful and demoralizing time. Yet despite all of these ups and downs, thanks to God's faithfulness, the CBC sanctuary was again full to overflowing in the mid-2000s. And they attempted a second service 
a more contemporary approach which would um, allow some of the younger people to have what they were yearning for. Yet they weren't able to sustain it, and so it ended before too long. And that was hard, too. Then came a period of transition. It was time for Dave Dunkerton to retire, and so the church began to search for a new shepherd. In 2008, they hired their second pastor, and that's when I became a part of their family, and their story became our story. The hope had been to hire someone younger, to draw in more young families, to, to continue the church's long tradition of caring and solid scripture teaching, and also to find new and creative ways to reach out to the community. At first, it seemed like CBC didn't miss a beat as I settled in and we moved forward together. Before long, we had a clear sense of our mission to, to know God, to grow together, to show Christ, and, and we began to ponder and consider various ways to carry that out. But then in 2010, right on the eve of joyously celebrating CBC's 40th anniversary, we suddenly lost the majority of the young families who attended our church. There wasn't a single reason that they, they left or a specific issue you could point to, but nonetheless, they left a big hole. And this prompted some soul searching. Perhaps it was God's way of getting our attention. I know it got my attention. And it forced us to look harder beneath the surface at what CBC was becoming. Continuing the CBC tradition, we pondered how we needed to innovate, to, to change and to adapt to changing times. Even while we resolved that we would stay true to our original values and core beliefs. We prayed, we, we asked God to guide us and to help us. And in 2011, we employed the help of the Center for Ministry Advancement to, to help us take a hard, objective look at, at who we were and how we needed to adjust. They helped us to see that we were facing a curve in the road, that we had many strengths still going for us, but if we desired to continue to be a growing and a vibrant congregation, we needed to reach out to younger people. We also needed to let them help determine what CBC would become, who we were, and, and where we were heading. CMA gave us a number of recommendations along these lines, and we took them to heart. Appointing a catalyst team, a young catalyst team by CBC's standards, we, we charged them to, to guide us in responding to these recommendations, to develop a new vision, and to carry out several new priorities. At the same time, God cleared the way for us to undertake the renovation of our building, a project we'd been wanting to do for years, but it never had seemed to materialize. And yet, God's unlikely timing is perfect, as everything now aligned to be able to get it done. And despite the bankruptcy of our general contractor in the middle of the project, and several unanticipated expenses along the way, Many people labored week by week to keep the progress moving forward, to keep the building hospitable, and to keep the chaos of construction at bay. And so this spring, we dedicated, uh, rather we, felt we celebrated God's faithfulness in giving us this renovated building. And we celebrated by inviting the community to come and share it with us. We call it the wider welcome as we now have a, a bright, spacious entryway and a hospitable coffee house to help people feel at home. And we want the welcome in our hearts to be just as wide. Meanwhile, we sought to move forward with the core work of the church, 
helping people to grow spiritually, and reaching out with the mission of Jesus Christ. As our elders pondered ways to, to help us be more focused and intentional about spiritual growth and how to be disciples and, and make disciples, at the same time, we pondered how to reach out to our community together. We realized that we're not the kind of church where everyone would get excited about one single approach to outreach. So we thought it would be better to allow several groups to, to each pursue the idea God had put on their heart. And so we decided to experiment with what we called missional communities. Groups of people who would gather together for fellowship and for spiritual growth, but whose identity would be formed around a common mission that they would pursue together. Truth be told, we barely knew what we were doing. You can be sure I was praying hard. But again, God seemed to be with us. He provided us with a resource to help. A ministry called 3DM, which specializes in helping churches focus on spiritual growth and discipleship, and also helping them to reach out effectively in our post-Christian world using missional communities. And so we're learning and we're experiencing, uh, experimenting, and we're doing it with, uh, guided by experts who have a lot of experience in this alongside of a lot of other churches who are on a similar journey to ours. These are interesting times for churches in America. Almost every church is being forced to change and adapt to find new ways to minister, and those who won't or can't change are often finding themselves faced with closing their doors. Meanwhile, CBC, maybe not in the summer, but the rest of the year, has been full to overflowing with new people, which is a hopeful sign. I'm not ready to declare victory yet, because as Larry Crabb once said, a room full of people isn't a job well done, it's a bigger job to do. <laughs> For all of us, as we seek to get to know one another, to knit ourselves together as an expanding family, to align ourselves with, with the mission God has given CBC and to find our place in it for each of us. As we need also to develop new leaders and to find ways to include newer and younger voices in determining who CBC is becoming and how we function. As we seek to, to get better at discipling relationships, at helping one another to grow spiritually, taking some risks to get close enough to speak into one another's lives. And as we continue to experiment with new ways of being church and new ways of reaching out in mission together. That's our story so far. We, like the people of Ezra's time, have had our obstacles, our setbacks, but we've also seen God at work. We've seen God overcome all opposition as he builds his house. So by way of application, what does the story we read in Ezra have to say about our story? Let me suggest three points of application. First, it says that we can expect struggles and oppositions along the way. God doesn't shield those that he loves from discouraging circumstances. He rather uses them to, to strengthen us, to deepen our faith, to teach us character, and in, to encourage us to rely on God so that God can prove himself strong and display his power to us and through us. You might have heard the analogy drawn to the Biosphere 2 experiment that was conducted several years ago in Arizona in a sheltered, carefully climate-controlled environment under a huge dome. 
And they found that the trees that they grew in the biosphere grew quickly, but turned out to be thin and weak, and many of them fell over under their own weight. And scientists were, were baffled until they realized that to grow strong, trees needed wind to push and to pull and to tug on them. And in the same way, we need struggles and oppositions, and we can expect them. The second thing the story of Ezra suggests, and that is that realizing all the plans that God has for us is going to require our diligent effort. Ezra 6.13 says that Tatnai and the other Persian officials near Jerusalem carried out Darius's order to see the temple rebuilt with all diligence. And biblical interpreters have pointed out that that phrase, with all diligence, is the theme phrase in the story of the temple's rebuilding in Ezra. It shows up in 5.18 where we're told that the people work with all diligence. And it shows up in 6.12 where Darius decrees that the temple be built with all diligence. You know, sometimes I think that some of us put more diligence and effort into our jobs and into our hobbies and into projects around the house than we do into our efforts for God. After all, God is God. Let him pick up the slack. But that's not the way God works. God could pick up the slack, but God knows that that wouldn't be good for us. Just like we as parents know, it's, it's not good for our children if we always pick up the slack for them. They never learn. And so God hasn't chosen to approach his relationship with us like some sort of magic trick where we just do however much, however well we please, and presto, God makes it all awesome. No, God says a person reaps what they sow. Behaviors have consequences. And so in some mysterious way, God has chosen to allow our efforts or our lack thereof to influence and even limit what gets accomplished, spiritually speaking. And so God asks us to be diligent, to give God his best, our best. In fact, Joe Vigilante reminded us a couple weeks ago that back in the time that this book of Ezra is telling the story of, when the people offered God, their rejects, their leftovers on his altar, sacrificial animals that were blind and lame that the people couldn't use anyway, God was insulted. God pointed out, you wouldn't dare give a gift like that to your governor. Why are you giving it to me? You dishonor me when you give me a half-hearted offering or a half-hearted effort. Am I not worth better than that? And so the Apostle Paul urges us in Philippians, run in such a way as to gain the prize. Give God your best. He's worthy of it. And if we at CBC are going to achieve all that God has for us, it's going to take our diligent efforts, as it has in the past years. Finally, third, the story of Ezra teaches us that we can expect God to move to accomplish what for us may seem impossible. In our story in Ezra, God moved a world emperor to declare that the temple would be rebuilt. God moved people to give their lives to sacrificially take up the task. God moved prophets to preach, to, to rebuke, motivate, and inspire people with God's word to keep them moving forward. And God moved a bureaucrat to get involved, which in turn allow, allowed God to move another world emperor to decree both that the temple get built 
and that the empire would pay for it. God may not get things done the way we would do them, but God sure does know how to get things done. Sometimes miraculously, sometimes not overtly miraculously, but amazingly nonetheless, and other times in quieter and more mundane ways that you just about miss if your spiritual eyes aren't open. But in all sorts of ways, God knows how to move any mountain and how to overcome any obstacle to help God's people as they trust him, as they work diligently to accomplish what God has called them to do. That's why we pray. You may have heard the saying, work like it all depends on you and pray like it all depends on God. Now that's an oversimplification that needs some nuancing, but you get the point, right? Even as we work diligently, we prayerfully rely on God and look for his hand to move. As we ask him to overcome the obstacles that stand in our way. And so let's pray, let's dream, and let's attempt God-sized visions to God's glory. Believing that God is more than able to see his purposes fulfilled. Because the story of CBC is not finished yet. It's still being told, and we all get to have a hand in writing the next chapter. <laughs>